can turn your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 13 this morning. We've come almost all the way through Hebrews, and it has been quite a ride. Uh, we saw that Jesus is better than everything, better than everything else, um, especially the law that was set before the Jews. So in 13, we will see a series of admonitions some directions that the writer lays out to these Hebrew believers he's writing to. He's already covered the doctrinal issues facing these new believers, the Hebrews, and he now goes into the practical applications for those things. These are practical applications that we can take in our Christian life as well. And we will look at these in the context of their historical context, how do these apply to the Hebrew believers, but we'll also look at it in, you know, how does this apply to me today? And then we can profit so much by not just reading the word of God, but applying it to our lives, letting it soak in and just coat our being. Everything that we say and do can be informed by what's in the Bible. So let's dive into Hebrews 13. Verse 1 says, let brotherly love continue. The word here for brotherly love is in the Greek, literally Philadelphia. We know we have a city named Philadelphia that is the city of brotherly love because that is the word that we're talking about. This is not an agape love, although we need to have that for each other as well. This is specifically talking about fondness. You know, you've heard it before, and I'll say it now. Sometimes you love people that you don't necessarily like. Your kids, for example. You always love them, no matter what. But sometimes it's hard to like them, okay? And so that's what we're talking about. Let fondness for your brothers, your brothers and sisters in Christ, continue. And we also need to remember that the people who he's writing to are under intense persecution at this point in history. The new Christians are being destroyed. They're being persecuted heavily. It was important for them to stick together, as it is today important for us to stick together. So this kind of rang true a little bit more to them, I think, than it made to us because of their circumstance. They were facing intense persecution, which we really have not seen yet here in America. So we are blessed by that, but still, let brotherly love continue. Do not forget to entertain strangers, for by doing so, some have unwittingly entertained angels. That's an interesting verse. Entertained does not mean da-da-da-da-da-da-da an entertainment, not in the amusement sense, but rather to receive as a guest. You entertain them. uh, You are showing hospitality to them. So we should show hospitality to others. Now, in the author's day, hospitality was a really big deal. And it's still a big deal in this part of the world, in the Middle East. The inns, if there were inns, were not like the hotels 
that we have today. If you could find an inn at this time, it would have been nasty. And it would not be somewhere you wanted to sleep or even be present. This being the case, it was important for believers when they traveled to meet other believers along the way. Believers who would take them in and let them stay at their house. uh, Just to lodge, to have a place to stay. Now, angels in this verse is a word for messenger. And this is used both to speak of heavenly angels and to speak of earthly messengers of God. Uh, A pastor, for instance, could be called a messenger. So I think that this carries both meanings, okay? Yes, and the classic interpretation is angels in the heavenly sense. And I agree with that. You may encounter an angel in your everyday life not knowing that it's an angel. That's fair. But also, you may unwittingly entertain another kind of messenger from God. Just an ordinary guy who's trying to further the kingdom. Um, And by entertaining him, you have also done something great. Do not forget to entertain strangers I will also say strangers are a bit more strange now than they used to be. Um, So, you know, use your brain. God gave you a brain. Uh, But do not forget to entertain strangers, for by doing so, some have unwittingly entertained angels. Remember the prisoners as if chained with them to those who are mistreated, since you yourselves are in the body also. This is a, a good verse for us to remember. Uh, Right now, there are countless Christians being persecuted all across the globe, Um, and we're so sheltered by it, or so sheltered from it in America, uh, that we really don't have a full grasp on what is actually happening. Um, There are believers in Ukraine right now. They are having a rough go at it. There are believers in Russia who are also having a tough go at it. There are believers all across the world who are being persecuted like we have never seen. We are to remember these Christians in our thoughts and in our prayers. There are also many Christians who are behind bars, literally in prison. And there are some wonderful prison ministries that do so much to reach those people, to solidify them in the gospel. Why do we need to continue and to remember and pray for these Christians? Because they're part of the same body that we are. If a finger gets chopped off, what does the rest of your body do? It focuses on the finger and it tries to help it. It doesn't just say, oh, forget you. I'm going to go over here and do something else, drink a glass of milk. It's concerned about the part that's hurting. The rest of the body should be concerned for these Christians who are hurting. We all make up different parts of the body of Christ. Verse 4, marriage is honorable among all. Now, Paul wrote... Um, 
believe it was first Corinthians seven, that if you can stay unmarried, Hey, that's great. If you want to get married. Awesome. Marriage is honorable among all. Um, And also at that point, when Paul was writing that, the persecution was intense. And that is the context in which he wrote, if you can stay single like I am, do it. That's the context. Because families were being ripped apart by this persecution. Husbands were being taken away from their wives, from their kids. That is a sad reality, but that's how it was. He wrote to the believers in Corinth saying, man, if you don't have to put yourself through that, it may be a good idea to abstain from marrying. But also, if that's your heart's desire and that is what God is calling you to do, it's permissible. Get married. Here, I believe Paul is saying this. Um, If not, still authored by the Holy Spirit, marriage is honorable among all. If God calls you to be married, get married. And the bed, undefiled. Bed is the word koite. We know coitus. That's where we get that word from. And the bed within the marriage is undefiled. Anything outside of the marriage is defiled, is unclean. But fornicators and adulterers, God will judge. We have two words here, fornicators and adulterers, that the author says God will judge. Fornicators refers to anyone who engages in sexual practices outside of marriage. It's like a catch-all. Adulterers are someone who gets married and then goes outside of that marriage to practice sex, to have those experiences. With both of these words, the whole gamut of sexual experiences besides those found within the marriage is covered, and it's condemned. But fornicators and adulterers, God will judge. Now, I do find comfort in what Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 6.11. He says this, Do not be deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor homosexuals, nor sodomites, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners will inherit the kingdom of God. None of those people will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. But, there's a contrast, but you were washed, but you were sanctified, but you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. As such were some of you, and as such some we were. But, you were sanctified, you were washed by the blood of Christ That sin that you were formerly involved in is no longer your identity. You can no longer, as a Christian, draw your identity from some sin that defined you in the past. Your identity now comes from Jesus Christ. And we can all fit into at least one of these categories that Paul listed off. 
If nothing else, we've all been covetous. We have all coveted something that we didn't have. And that will come up later in our passage in Hebrews as well. You can't say something like, I'm a homosexual Christian. It's like saying, I'm a Christian addict or I'm an adulterous Christian. They don't mix. You cannot identify with the sin and identify with Christ. It doesn't work. If you are blood-bought by Jesus Christ and you have accepted that gift, that is your identity. You are in Christ. You're no longer in the world. 2 Corinthians 5.17 reads, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. We die to our previous self and we are born in Christ. We are born again. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. You know, there is some confusion in the church, even today, uh, whether premarital sex, sex outside of a marriage, is permissible or not. There, I know it is somewhat surprising to us if you grew up in the church, if you've been around this, but the church is compromising on these issues. Um, and it is, to them, it seems not as clear-cut as is laid out in the scripture. I want you to think about something. What good does it do? Premarital sex, if you engage in it, what good is it doing for you? Now, what harm is it doing you? I can tell you there's a whole lot more harm than there is good. And the good that it may give you is fleeting. It won't stick around, but the damage does stick around. The emotional damage, sometimes physical damage, will stick with you. And those are just consequences that we would have to deal with. Yes, we can be forgiven of our sins, and we are if we ask. But there are certain Consequences that we just have to deal with. The instance of STDs would go down if premarital sex was not engaged in. The emotional damage that it causes would go down. These are all things that we have to think about. So regardless of what you believe the scripture says, okay, hypothetically, throw that out, hypothetically. What good is it doing to engage in this behavior? It's not doing any good. And you can tell when a couple is engaged in something they shouldn't be. You know, they start bickering like married couple. And the easiest thing to do is to tell them, hey, you got a problem with that? Break up with them. Break up with her. Move on. There's plenty of fish in the sea. But when you've given yourself so fully to someone else outside of the commitment of marriage, the emotional baggage that comes with breaking up with that person is almost unbearable. 
It just ties you together so much. It is so hard to break that bond. And it is not just a physical bond. Emotional and spiritual. Two become one. Marriage is honorable among all, and the bed undefiled. This little phrase, and the bed undefiled, tells me something very simple. If it's a man and a woman who are married, go for it. I don't see the Bible prohibiting any certain sexual practices between a man and a woman who are married. But fornicators and adulterers, God will judge. Verse 5, let your conduct be without covetousness. Be content with such things as you have. For he himself has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we may boldly say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? So in the, the context of marriage here, Let your conduct be without covetousness. Don't go around and see some lady who looks nice and start thinking how it would be to be married to her. If you have a wife, you have your wife. And that is the one with which you have to do. It's impossible to avoid seeing beautiful people all around. There's a movie called Zoolander. And if you know it, you know how stupid it is. Zoolander is tasked with killing the prime minister of Malaysia. He's going down the runway, and there are all these beautiful celebrities to each side of him. And his instructions are very clear. Ignore the beautiful celebrities. Kill the prime minister of Malaysia. He has to be focused can't be distracted by the beautiful people, okay? So, I say that to say this. Don't be distracted by the beautiful people. It's one thing to say, hey, she she is a beautiful person. And it's another thing to say, hey, she's a beautiful person. I wonder what it would be like to be married to her. I wonder, you know, all of these things that we can let our mind wander into. Um. You look at someone, acknowledge, hey, she's pretty, and then you move on. You don't fixate on that. Let your conduct be without covetousness, wanting what you don't have. Be content with such things as you have. The only way that we can possibly be content with what we have, since we are human, is through Jesus. We have everything we need in Jesus, truly. If you had, and I don't want verbal answers on this, just think to yourself. If you had nothing, if God never blessed you with any material thing again in your life, would Jesus be enough? Think about it. I'm not sure that I can answer satisfactorily. That's a difficult question. Is Jesus enough if God never blessed you again? Think on it this week. Pray about it. See what you come to. 
because that is an important question. Be content with such things as you have. For he himself has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we may boldly say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? What can man do to me? Jesus passed along some wisdom to his disciples when he said, And do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul, but rather fear him who is able to destroy both the body and the soul in hell. That's from Matthew 10, 28. What can man do to us? Man can harm us in this world, but man cannot take us away from our eternal inheritance, an eternal life with Christ. Man does not have that power, only God. Remember those who rule over you, who have spoken the word of God to you, whose faith follow, considering the outcome of their conduct. Those who rule over you. This is in a spiritual sense. Those teachers and shepherds of the flock, the people who have spiritual influence in your life, considering the outcome of their conduct. Watch how these people live. Watch how I live. Don't indiscriminately give people positions of leadership without paying attention to their conduct, how they conduct themselves. If I wanted to learn how to make a million dollars, I promise you I would not go to someone who owed a million dollars and ask, hey, how do you make a million dollars? I would go to the millionaire. I'd go to several, ask them what they think. They're the end of their conduct is going to determine how likely I am to ask for their advice. That's just the plain and simple fact. We are just to be fruit inspectors. We're not judging the fruit. I'm just inspecting it. If you see an apple, you know what kind of tree that apple came from. It didn't come from a pear tree didn't come from a banana tree, came from an apple tree. You can tell what tree someone comes from by examining the fruit in their life. We're fruit inspectors. The fruit indicates what kind of tree you're dealing with. Remember those who rule over you, who have spoken the word of God to you, whose faith follow, considering the outcome of their conduct, inspect their fruit. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Do not be carried about with various and strange doctrines, for it is good that the heart be established by grace, not with foods which have not profited those who have been occupied with them. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Jesus I'll add one to this repertoire of Jesus is better than. Jesus is better than science. Science changes nearly daily. Jesus has not changed ever for eternity. Jesus is better than science. The gospel is the same today 
as it was 2,000 years ago when Jesus was walking the earth. And it's been the same from the foundation of the world. Revelation tells us that the Son of Man, Jesus Christ, was the Lamb slain from the foundation of the world. The gospel doesn't change. Do not be carried about with various and strange doctrines. Boy, are there some strange doctrines floating around. Do not be carried about with various and strange doctrines, for it is good that the heart be established by grace, not with foods which have not profited those who have been occupied with them. We've got the idea of foods occupying someone's attention. Now, the new covenant is established in grace. The author says that grace is what your heart needs to be established by. The grace should be the foundation on which we build our faith. Grace is the foundation, not works, not foods, which have not profited those who have been occupied with them. This speaking of foods could mean a couple of things. And I have my opinion, but I hold it loosely. Okay, there's a couple of thoughts in the commentaries about this. One is that it's talking about the law, you know, which would make sense because we're in Hebrews and he's talking about the law. Talking about the abstention of foods by the Israelites according to the law. The other school of thought is that he's talking now about uh, pagan practices, about eating certain foods. Okay, and I've looked at the, the Greek a little bit, and I can't tell whether it's talking about abstaining from foods or actually partaking of foods. It seems to not discriminate between either of those. Okay, this word occupied um, in the Greek is one word, but we have translated it into many words. Those who have, prop, who have been occupied with them. That word means literally just to focus your attention on, to live your life by. It's not talking about abstaining or taking foods. So I can't really tell you for sure either way. Personally, I would think that it's talking about the law just because of where it is in scripture. Um, we're going through uh, the author's direction to these new believers who came out of Judaism, and he's talking about the law. So I would feel comfortable telling you to take it that way. But either way you take it, it says the same thing. Don't be fixated on worldly things. Don't be fixated on your works. Be fixated on grace, on the grace that God has provided. Do not be carried about with various and strange doctrines. For it is good that the heart be established by grace, not with foods. We have an altar from which those who serve the tabernacle have no right to eat. For the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the sanctuary by the high priest for sin are burned outside the camp. Therefore, Jesus also, 
that he might sanctify the people with his own blood suffered outside the gate. Therefore, let us go forth to him outside the camp, bearing his reproach. For here we have no continuing city, but we seek the one to come. Therefore, by him, let us continually offer the sacrifice of praise to God. That is the fruit of our lips, giving thanks to his name. But do not forget to do good and to share. For with such sacrifices, God is well pleased. Back up to verse 10, we have an altar from which those who serve the tabernacle have no right to eat. For the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the sanctuary by the high priest for sin are burned outside the camp. So even these offerings that were offered in the tabernacle, the bodies of those animals were burned outside the camp. This is an interesting foreshadowing, and the author connects it for us. We don't have to do much inferencing here. Therefore, Jesus also, that he might sanctify the people with his own blood, comparing it to the sacrifice of the Old Testament, suffered outside the gate. Jesus was not crucified in the city of Jerusalem, but outside the city gate. He was crucified on Golgotha, which would have been visible from the city, but itself being outside. That he might sanctify the people with his own blood suffered outside the gate. There's also a deeper message here. And one that I believe the Hebrews he was writing to would have picked up on. Jerusalem was seen as the center of Judaism, and for good reason. Okay, It was the center of Jewish thought. Jesus was crucified outside the city, outside of the religious system of Judaism. You have to go outside the city to find him outside of religiosity, outside of religion, to find Jesus. Bearing his reproach. Verse 13, Therefore let us go forth to him outside the camp, bearing his reproach. What reproach would the reader have to bear, these Jewish Christians? Well, if they left their Jewish roots to follow Jesus, they very likely would have had to suffer reproach of their family, of their friends who were still stuck in the Old Covenant. Other Jews would have not held them with high regard, bearing his reproach. We may also have to leave our heritage if we are to follow Christ. Many people coming to Jesus didn't grow up in the church. They did not have a Christian background. And sometimes the families of these new believers will give them flack, will disown them for their new belief. More broadly than that even, we share in the reproach of Christ when the world hates us. And it shouldn't be a surprise to us when this happens, because it will. And we're told very plainly um, in Scripture, if the world hates you, these are the words of Jesus, if the world hates you, you know that it hated me before it hated you. 
So don't be surprised when it happens. The world will hate you for being, for having your identity with Christ because it hated him first. Verse 14, for here we have no continuing city, but we seek the one to come. In other words, the city of Jerusalem won't last forever, but the city whose builder and maker is God will last forever. And that's the city we seek, that eternal city. We have our hearts and eyes set on an eternity with Christ. And truly, the deepest longing of our being is a spiritual reality. We long for a spiritual reality. And by faith, though it may seem far off, that reality that waits for us in Christ can be real to us in the present by faith. The hope that we have as Christians is established in faith. It was by faith that Abraham, quote, dwelt in the land of promise as in a foreign country, for he waited for the city which has foundations, whose builder and maker is God. Faith allowed Abraham to live as though the future was present. He lived in a foreign land that was only promised to him. The land wasn't fully given over to his possession yet, but he looked to a future city, the city which has foundations, whose builder and maker is God. Therefore, by him, let us continually offer the sacrifice of praise to God, that is, the fruit of our lips, giving thanks to his name. But do not forget to do good and to share, for with such sacrifices God is well pleased. We have different sacrifices under Jesus than they did under the Old Testament. This word share in verse 16, do not forget to do good and share, is koinonia. And you may have heard of this word before. It means to fellowship or to share, distribute, or contribute. It can speak of material goods. It can also speak of other things like our time. We share in our time when we fellowship. But in every sense of the word, it speaks of people coming together and sharing in something. As believers, we should stick together. When one has a need, everyone else should flock around and care for that one who has the need. We should be caring for the other parts of the body of Christ. 17. Obey those who rule over you, and be submissive, For they watch out for your souls as those who must give account. Let them do so with joy and not with grief, for that would be unprofitable to you. Now, I want to clarify that the clergy, people leading you spiritually, should not be domineering over you. In fact, this is one thing that Jesus said, I hate this. I hate the doctrine of the Nicolaitans. 
the domineering of the clergy, the shepherding movement. You may have heard of it before. Um, This is one of those various and strange doctrines that has in the past floated around the church. The idea from the shepherding movement is that if anyone in the church had a major life decision, if you're trying to buy or sell a house, you were moving, uh, thinking about having a kid, you would have to go to the clergy, to the pastor, to someone, and get approval for that. First of all, you don't want me making those decisions for you. Second of all, I don't have time to, even if I wanted to. Okay, so you make your own decisions. I, I'll support you in them, but probably, but you make the decisions. Rather, this verse is saying to have a submissive spirit, but the submissive is not like you're being walked all over. To yield, that's the magical word. A yielded spirit, have a yielded attitude towards your spiritual leaders because they want to help you in most cases. They want what's good for your soul and they will have to give an account for what they teach you. I will have to give an account for what I teach. You know, and first of all, that's terrifying for me, but it also makes me want to study. It makes me want to get it right so that what I tell you is absolute truth from God, from God's word. Obey those who rule over you and have a yielded spirit towards them, for they watch out for your souls as those who must give account. Now, let them do so with joy and not with grief, for that would be unprofitable for you. So, When I go to God and I think of you, I want to have joy. I don't want to have grief. You know, I love to see people come into the church. They're learning their Bible and they're living it out. That is one of the most rewarding things ever. Um, I love to see that and it gives me joy when people just soak in the word of God. And you can tell. You can tell by how they're carrying themselves, how they're interacting with other people. That's joyful. On the other hand, if I know I'm teaching the word faithfully and I just can't get through to someone, that causes me grief. I don't like that. And, you know, you want to be the one who causes joy. You want to soak it all in and you want it to inform how you live. Let them do so with joy. Let me give an account for you with joy, not with grief, for that would be unprofitable for you. Pray for us. Goodness. Those in ministry need your prayers so desperately. Um, It was told to me when I started, um, I would meet with Justin fairly often on a weekly basis. And one of the things that he really impressed upon me was once you step into the pulpit, once you take some kind of 
influential, in quotes, position, there's a target that's placed on your back. And that goes for anyone who is serving. If the enemy can hinder you from carrying out your service, that's what he's going to do. And man, getting going was easy. There wasn't much that held me back. I was a lowly single college guy. But when I really stepped up and I really started teaching, the attacks came and they're still coming. We need your prayer. That goes for all of us serving. We need prayer. And, you know, prayer is one of those things. You don't have to be present with the person to help them out. Prayer is often likened to a bow and arrow. It's a distance weapon. You don't have to be with me or with Jordan to pray for us. You can help us out wherever you are. Um, and we love to hear y'all say, man, been praying for you. Um, I love to hear that. Pray for us. For we are confident that we have a good conscience in all things desiring to live honorably. So the author is saying, we're teaching you things. You know, we are in spiritual leadership. We want you to be yielded to us spiritually. And we are confident that we have a good conscience. So we're not coming to you, teaching you these things with a marred conscience, with a bitter countenance. We are confident in what we're teaching. In all things desiring to live honorably. You know, pastors aren't perfect. Nobody's perfect. I'm going to slip up a little bit. You're going to slip up a little bit. But I desire to live honorably. That's my desire. And I hope that that's your desire. In all things desiring to live honorably. But I especially urge you to do this, that I may be restored to you the sooner. Verse 20, now may the God of peace who brought up our Lord Jesus from the dead, that great shepherd of the sheep, through the blood of the everlasting covenant, make you complete in every good work to do his will, working in you what is well-pleasing in his sight, through Jesus Christ, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Regardless of that amen, he writes a little bit more. And it's ironic what he writes after that. Um, Verse 21, make you complete. This word complete literally means to equip one for service. Kenneth Wiest, in his rendition of the New Testament, his translation, says this. He translated it as this. Equip you in every good thing to do his will. Where God calls you, he will provide for you. He will gift you to do certain things that he calls you to. Working in you what is well-pleasing in his sight. He's not working in me something that's pleasing in my sight necessarily, but in his sight. Sometimes 
I see a golden opportunity, whether in ministry or in life. There's this great opportunity that I can step towards and I can seize. And when I step in that direction, it's completely obliterated. And I just take that as a closed door and I move on. It may have been pleasing in my sight, but evidently it was not pleasing in his sight. Make you complete in every good work to do his will, working in you what is well-pleasing in his sight. Through Jesus Christ, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. And I appeal to you, brethren, bear with the word of exhortation, for I have written to you in few words. That's what's ironic. I've written to you in few words. And I just want to say, if 13 chapters is few words, I would hate to see what many words is. We have had a lot from the author here. You know, Paul was wordy. I'm just saying, I do think that it was Paul. Also, know that our brother Timothy has been set free, with whom I shall see you if he comes shortly. Again, the author is relating himself to Timothy, something that Paul certainly would have been able to do. Greet all those who rule over you and all the saints. Those from Italy greet you. Grace be with you all. Amen. And that is the close of his letter to the Hebrews. What a fitting close to the letter. Grace be with you all. Grace, the foundation which we build our faith on. Grace, the very thing by which we can even be saved. God's grace. So I'll ask you a question as we close. What have we seen through the entire book of Hebrews? What's the theme? Well, just like a mirror, the law can't perfect, only reflect. That is what the author of Hebrews is telling us. The law can't perfect you. It can't do what Jesus can do. Jesus is the author and finisher. Finisher also means perfecter. He's the author and perfecter of our faith. And he is the only way that we can be perfected. It is in Christ. Just like that mirror that we talked about towards the beginning of our Hebrew study, the law cannot perfect you. It can only reflect. We look into a mirror in the morning to see our flaws, and we want to see them so we can fix them. But the mirror itself doesn't fix our face. We have to do that ourselves. The law doesn't perfect, it just reflects. Jesus is the one that comes in, puts our makeup on. He perfects us. He takes away our flaws. And we have such a better covenant in Jesus Christ. I praise God for that. Let's close in a word of prayer.
Thank mm-hmm. you.